Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. Thoughts and comments expressed here are the opinions of Chad and Lou, and not necessarily those of Al Seeger or Point of Insanity Game Studios. Caution, this show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 11 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversation based on pretty much whatever topic we want. I'm your host, Lou Schwalbach, alongside Chad Knight. This week, we'll be talking about those huge talents and often bigger-egoed musical conglomerations, the supergroup. A supergroup is defined as a group whose members are already successful as solo artists or as part of other groups or well-known in other professions. More often than not, it's a big name finding other big names and collaborating on a side project. Much of the time, it's just some artists wanting a change of personnel. They go out and recruit from other bands, try to make the best team. Think like fantasy football music edition. Most supergroups really don't stand the test of time getting together for a one-shot performance or an album or two, but then there's a few that actually have ruled the airways for a few years. Today, Chad and I are going to talk about a few of our favorite supergroups. I'm sure some will be for the individual artists involved, while others are going to be for the full group's output. And other furthers, and further others, I should say, will likely be for the sum of all parts. So go ahead and take a chair and let's get this show started, Chad. The first, where I'm going to start, and, and I know this is going to be a shock to everybody out there, but especially to Lou. This is going to be a shock. Are you ready? All right. It's a group called the Dirty Mac. And this was composed of the members of John Lennon. I, I find this humorous, though, but he, he didn't go as John Lennon in this group. He was known as Winston Legthigh from the <laughs> Beatles, Eric Clapton of Cream, uh, Mitch Mitchell of the Jimi Hendrix Experience, and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. Now, the Dirty Mac were a one-time English supergroup consisting of, of these four men put together uh, for the Rolling Stones TV special titled The Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. Recorded on December 11th, 1968, this was the first time since the formation of the Beatles that Lennon, who was still in the group, had performed in public without them. The Dirty Mac recorded a, re- a rendition of the Lennon Pandit Beatles track, Your Blues. Here, take a listen to this. Yes, I'm lonely. You know the reason. And then they went on to back up Yoko Ono and violinist Ivory Gittilis on a track called Whole Lotta Yoko, essentially an extended blues jam on top of which Ono improvised freeform vocalizations. The name, thought of by Lennon, was a play on Fleetwood Mac, who at the time was a very popular band in the United Kingdom. When asked what type of guitar amp Lennon would like to use for the performance, his answer was, one that plays. What can you say about a group like this, other than to call it super? It was bound to be just for one, just for a night, but with a lineup of Lennon, Clapton, Mitchell, and Richards, I'd say this is truly a super group. What do you think, Lou? Well, I will say that I've, I'll be honest, I mean, I am not as big a Beatle fan as yourself, which I have repeated multiple, multiple times, and as you so eloquently have to- told me, I will never be. Right, and you're wrong. <laughs> and, um, that being said, I never knew of this band. And 
from what you had mentioned, the fact that they only really did like one shots and kind of short term engagements, it wouldn't surprise me because they it was were, actually just one night for one TV show, which would make even more sense that I had really never heard of them. Upon listening to it, it does have the eponymous um, Beatles style to it. You, oh, yeah. you can definitely tell that there's an influence of Lennon in there. I really don't have much to add on that, I'll be honest. Yeah, I, I mean, I really enjoyed that the, that version of Your Blues. However, the whole lot of Yoko thing they did, well, I'm not a fan of Yoko Ono's music. And from what I've read about her over the years, I'm not really that much of a fan of hers in general. You know, I, I thought this definitely qualifies in that supergroup, what a supergroup is. Oh, absolutely. So what do you got for us? All right, well, what I've got here for you is... This is a supergroup called The Firm. Um, it was formed in 1984 with former Free and Bad Company singer Paul Rogers, with guitarist Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. The drummer was Chris Slade, and that was from Manfred Rand's Earth Band, who later would go on to be ACDC's drummer. And then it was um, Roy Harper bass player Tony Franklin. It's interesting to note that during their tenure, Page and Rogers didn't play material from their former bands. Really? They wanted to only be known for their own material, one of which being this clip right here. Well, I'm not uptight, not unattractive. Turn me on tonight, because I'm a radioactive, radioactive. They just want to be known for their own personal material, which is fine, especially when you're coming from such well-known bands as Zeppelin or Bad Company, or Free for that matter, because... I mean, they both had their own significant contributions to music, especially Zeppelin. I mean, Bad Company was popular, but, I mean, it's frickin' Zeppelin. Just wanting to be known for their own stuff, like, it's it's commendable, in my opinion. They did play together until 1986, and then after they did two albums, they ended up going their own separate ways, and that's kind of the end of The Firm. Okay, yeah. I have never heard of The Firm, to be honest with you. You know, I, uh, great. Zeppelin, Page, um... You've got uh, ACDC drummer, and of course he wasn't at that point yet, but, uh, you know, an Earth, uh, Mackinac Band's Earth Band, love those guys. So, I can't see it being a bad thing. No, and it's it's 80s music, to be sure, but at the same time, you can definitely tell Paul Rogers' signature voice to it, and even if you hadn't heard it, it's worth giving a listen to. All right, definitely do that. So what do you got for number next one for me? All right, so my next one is actually uh, Temple of the Dog. Uh, the song we're going to be listening to is called Hunger Strike. Uh, the members are Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. He was uh, the vocalist. Uh, Steve Gossard of Mother Love Bone was the rhythm guitarist. Jeff Ament, also of Mother Love Bone, was the bass guitarist. And then Pearl Jam had their uh, flavor in this. Uh, Mike McCready uh, was lead guitars. Matt Cameron was the drums of Pearl Jam, and then Eddie Vedder was actually a guest vocalist with this band, even though he wasn't officially a member of it. Uh, Temple of Dog was an American rock band that was formed in Seattle, Washington in 1990. It was conceived by vocalist Chris Cornell of Soundgarden as a tribute to his friend, the late Andrew Wood, lead singer of the bands Malfunction and Mother Love Bone. The lineup includes Stone Gossard of, on rhythm guitar, uh, like I said, Jeff Ament on bass guitar, McCready on lead guitar and Matt Cameron on drums. Eddie Vedder appeared as a guest to provide some lead and backing vocals. Here, take a listen to this. And it's on the table, the mouths are choking, but I'm going hungry. Uh, the band released its only self-titled Temple of the Dog album in April of 1991 through A&M Records. 
The recording sessions took place in November and December of 1990 at London Bridge Studios in Seattle, Washington, with producer uh, Rick Parashar. Although earning praise from music critics at the time of its release, the album was not widely recognized until 1992 when Vetter, Ament, Gossard, and McCready had their breakthrough with Pearl Jam. The band toured in 2016 in celebration of the 25th anniversary of their self-titled album, another once-and-done group with a lot of firepower. What do you think, Lou? I would agree. You know, listening to Temple of the Dog, I remember really enjoying Hunger Strike, actually. That was one of the one songs that I thoroughly enjoyed of their catalog. They did have a short live to their duration, but it was still an entertaining collaboration to me. Yeah, I would agree. So what do you got next? The next is a super group called Damn Yankees. Oh, love me some Damn Yankees. Damn Yankees was formed in 1989 of guitarist Ted Nugent of the Amboy Dukes and Solo Success, Tommy Shaw of Styx, another one of my favorite bands, Jack Blades of Night Ranger, uh, drummer, I'm sorry, Michael, is it Cardalone? who was unknown at the time, but actually went on further to be with Leonard Skinner. They had quite a few, I think they had a couple different albums that were successful. One of their top hits was Coming of Age as well as High Enough. And let's take a listen to some of their stuff. Little sister, it's a stage. She can't help it, she's coming of age. Little junior, he's all. They had actually two successful albums during their seven-year tenure. Damn Yankees, their self-titled, went double platinum, and Don't Tread went gold. That spawned multiple hits. Most of their music could be considered arena rock or glam metal, very similar to that of Styx or Nike Ranger. But it was a lot softer than fans are really used to from Ted Nugent, because he was more known as like the Motor City Madman, you know, a hard rock type, you know. Cat scratch fever. Exactly. You know, so it was a different change of pace for him, but it was successful. They dissolved and then reunited twice, once in 2004 for Alice Cooper's charity concert, Christmas Pudding. Christmas Pudding. Yup. And then All in right. 2010, as a surprise appearance at the National Association for Music Merchants show. And that's kind of where it ended for them. So what is your thoughts about Damn Yankees? Well, I will tell you, I saw Damn Yankees in concert. Nice. And um, it was a great show. It wasn't the Ted Nugent that I was psyched to see because he didn't do the whole, you know, uh, Detroit Madman kind of thing, the Motor City Madman. Sure. Thing. But um, they were they were pretty damn good in concert. And the song High Enough, I mean, I think that was played everywhere when I think it was that out. One, wasn't that associated with the Olympics too? It might have been. I, I couldn't answer that yes or I no. I think but. it was. I've seen Uncle Ted in concert th three times, I think. Oh, wow. And his shows are just a riot. I'm sorry, but he goes political, which love him or hate him. I mean, I don't. He sticks with his political stance. He sticks with his guns, literally and figuratively. Yes. And while you may not want to agree with him for his conservative stance, you can't argue that that dude knows how to rock. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm just glad I got to see that versus the the damn Yankees version because I probably would have been disappointed as well. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, it is what it is. And damn Yankees, if you haven't heard of them, go out, find their shit because it's good. It is. And what do you got to follow up for me? All right, so up next, I've got the Foo Fighters. Dave Grohl from Nirvana, Nate Mendel from Sunny Day Real Estate, Pat Smear. Uh, who played guitar, was a touring guitarist for Nirvana. He wasn't an actual member. Taylor Hawkins on drums uh, from Taylor Hawkins and the Coattail Riders and 
so many more different groups that he's been a part of. Chris Shefflett from Me First and the Gimme Gimmies. <laughs> I've always loved that band name. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a great band name. And then, of course, they had two members that started and then left, William Goldsmith and uh, Franz Stahl. So the Foo Fighters is an American rock band formed in Seattle, Washington in 1994. I think that I'm starting to find a pattern in the stuff I like. It sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> it was founded by Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl as a one-man project following the death of Kurt Cobain and the resulting dissolution of the pre of his previous band. The group got its name from the UFOs and various aerial phenomena that were reported by Allied aircraft pilots in World War II, which were known collectively as Foo Fighters. Prior to the release of Foo Fighters' 1995 debut album, Foo Fighters, which featured Grohl as the only official member, Grohl recruited bassist Nate Mendel and drummer William Goldsmith, both formerly of Sunny Day Real Estate, as well as Nirvana touring guitarist Pat Smear to complete the lineup. The band began with performances in Portland, Oregon. Goldsmith quit during the recording of the group's second album, The Color of the Shape, when most of the drum parts were re-recorded by Grohl himself. Smear's departure followed soon afterward, though he would rejoin them in 2005. They were replaced by Taylor Hawkins and Franz Stahl, respectively, although Stahl was fired before the recording of the group's third album, There's Nothing Left to Lose. Features the song Learn to Fly. Here, listen to this. The band briefly continued as a trio until Chris Shiflett joined as the band's lead guitarist after the completion of There Is Nothing Left to Lose. The band released its fourth album, One by One, in 2002. The group followed that release with the two-disc In Your Honor, which was split between acoustic songs and heavier material. Foo Fighters released its sixth album, Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace, in 2007. The band's seventh studio album, Wasting Light, produced by Butch Vig, was released in 2011 and with Smear returned as a full member. In November 2014, the band's eighth studio album, Sonic Highways, was released as an accompanying soundtrack to the Grohl-directed 2014 miniseries of the same name. Over the course of the band's career, four of its albums have won Grammy Awards for Best Rock Album. As of 2015, the band's eight albums have sold 12 million copies in the U.S. and 30 million worldwide. So they kind of go against that grain of a one-and-done supergroup. So you're telling me that they're kind of successful. Yeah, I would say they are kind of successful. Hell, I'd take a portion of that kind of successful. Yeah. I, can we get to 20 listeners? Yeah, here's the hoping, right? Yeah. I dig Foo Fighters. You know, actually, I like them a lot more than I like Nirvana. And I can see that. I was a big Nirvana fan, but... If you laid the two down in front of me, I don't know which one I would pick up and listen to first. I would still say Foo because Nirvana was a bit more grunge. It was a bit more dirty. Yeah, and, and I was it, into the grunge scene for a while. Yeah, I, actually, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that was it was fun to listen to, but it wasn't really my long-lasting thing. I was still more of a rock person. So when you got like your learning to learn to fly or my hero, that kind of was more of a what I was used to. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I was digging it a lot more. I can see that. All right, man, what do you got next? All right, next group that I've got is Chickenfoot. Now, Chickenfoot was formed in 2008, and it comprised of singer, sometimes guitarist Sammy Hagar, and bassist Michael Anthony, formerly of Van Halen, drummer Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and guitarist Joe Satriani. Sammy himself, the way that he tells the story is that him, Michael Anthony, and Chad Smith were jamming along together at Cabo Wabo in Mexico, Sammy's Club, and people started asking when they'd be touring or making a record, and Sammy thought to himself, you know, to do it properly, 
they would need to get a guitarist. And the first person who came to mind was Joe Satriani, who Hager himself feels to be one of the best guitarists in the world, which is kind of interesting if you think about it, since he was informally in a band with one of the best in the world of Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. One of their main hits was Oh Yeah, and that's what we're going to take a listen to now. Now, their first performance... First performance? I can't say if it's that one. I haven't found any of that out there. But their first performance was in Vegas, and their first album, self-titled Chickenfoot, was recorded at Skywalker Sound, of all places. Oh. Another place I'd love to visit someday, just not the way that Sheldon did. And it was released in 2009 and went gold. They went on a bit of a hiatus when Smith went back to the Chili Peppers to get a new album, but then reconvened in 2010 to record Chickenfoot 2, which was released in 2011, and they're actually still touring today. Now, being as the fact that I like Van Halen, um, I kind of followed their career a little bit, which also had me follow Sammy Hagar when he broke away, which is why I knew about Chickenfoot, between that and the, the classic rock station. I like their stuff, and, you know, like Sammy Hagar, Satriani's freaking amazing. Yeah, Satriani is a good guitarist. Um, as his Good. Would you let me finish my my? Uh, go ahead. He was a he's a good guitarist, as is Eddie Van Halen. I still don't think either of them are the best guitarists in the world. No, not the best, but they're I'd say they're top five. They're good. They're yeah, I would say they're in the top. Uh, I don't know, ten maybe. And that, that's a discussion for a whole different type yeah, of absolutely. episode, but or an um, argument for another time. Or an argument for another time. Now I'm going to tell you who my favorite guitarist and who I think the best guitarist in the world is. And you may or may not be shocked, but uh, Richie Sambora of Bon Jovi. I think you might be a little bit biased, but then again, as am I due to the fact of who I care for. But then again, at the same time, Satriani is just amazing. He is. I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you there. I, I'm just saying I don't think he's the best. No, he's not the best, but he's better than good is what I was getting at. Oh, you didn't like the, the word I used. I think he's better than good is all I'm saying. So you didn't like the word I used? Sure. Okay. I am not familiar with Chickenfoot. I not. I probably you said the one song. Oh yeah, was radio played, so I probably heard it. Then soap on a rope. Okay, and I haven't. And neither of those pop in my brain as something I've heard before. But I mean, the lineup you got there, I can't really see anything bad about it except Sammy Hagar. And again, that's a, that's an argument for another time too. Well, yeah, you're a Roth guy, so of course it has nothing to do with being a Roth guy. It's but just. I don't like Hagar's entire body of work for the most part. There's a few songs. For the most part, he just he's overrated to my to my taste. But at least he's not Gary Sharon. Okay. We can agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, what do you got for me? Alright, so up next I have the band Audio Slave, which comprised of Chris Cornell of Soundgarden as lead singer and rhythm guitarist. And then the rest of the band was from Rage Against the Machine. We have Tom Morello on lead guitar, Tim Comerford on bass guitar and backing vocals, and Brad Wilk on drums. Audio Slave was an American rock supergroup formed in Los Angeles, California in 2001. Critics first described Audio Slave as a combination of Soundgarden and Rage Against the Machine. But by the band's second album, Out of Exile, it was noted that they had established a separate identity. Audio Slave's trademark sound was created by blending 1970s hard rock with 1990s alternative rock. Moreover, Morello incorporated his well-known, unconventional guitar solos into the mix. 
As with Rage Against the Machine, the band prided themselves on the fact that all sounds on their albums were produced only by guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. In the six years of its existence, Audio Slave released three albums, received three Grammy nominations, and became the first American rock band to perform an open-air concert in Cuba. Audio Slave disbanded in February 2007 when Cornell issued a statement announcing that it was he was permanently leaving the band due to irresolvable personality conflicts as well as mu- musical differences. Let's go ahead and listen to uh, Gasoline. The 2007 Rage Against the Machine reunion and tour involving the rest of the band as well as solo albums released the same year by Morello and Cornell cemented the supergroup's permanent demise. On January 20th, 2017, three days after announcing their reunion, Audio Slave performed together for the first time in over a decade at Prophets of Rage anti-inaugural ball. So, Lou, what do you think of Audio Slave? I was never a huge fan. I knew of them, but I really didn't listen too much of their stuff. I have to say, I think if I recall what you had just mentioned, that some critics said that they sounded like Soundgarden and Rage Against the Machine. Uh, duh. Isn't that the laziest critic ever? Yes. I That's mean, a guy I'm... going, who's in this band? Okay, he was in Soundgarden. They were on Rage Against the Machine. It sounds like they just mashed these two bands together. Yeah, it's... I'm sorry, but that is one of the most ridiculous statements ever. I mean, that guy got paid for that, too. That's what chaps my ass you know and the funny thing about it is that would be like me going beatles are the best band ever and then backing it up with nothing well you know and and this is off topic a little bit but it's like there's if you've seen those memes online where it's like the drummer from nirvana looks just like the lead singer from foo fighters or the rock looks just like dwayne johnson are you serious now honestly (laughs) i mean do some friggin' homework yeah i mean you can say yeah they sound like it but that's because they are follow it up man seriously do your job right say why and say whether it's a good or a bad thing this guy's just like well they sound like you mush these two bands together thanks buddy well that podcast sounds like lou and chad imagine that because it is retard (laughs) yeah exactly and what do you got well my next one is it's alter bridge alter bridge alter bridge is comprised of Lead and lead guitarist and singer Mark Tremonti, bassist Brian Marshall, and drummer Scott Phillips, formerly of Creed, along with lead singer and guitarist Miles Kennedy from the Mayfield Four. Now, Creed broke up in 2004 due to tension between Scott Stapp and the rest of the band. I mean, anybody who followed the news at all about entertainment really saw the meltdown that Scott Stapp had. I mean, yeah, he, he was a giant douchebag. Uh, well, and that wasn't even cont- <laughs> taking into account the fact that he was an alcoholic. Now... The remaining members of Creed really weren't ready to stop making music, so they formed Alter Bridge later that year, which kind of has more of a harder style than Creed did, especially on the song Isolation, which we'll listen to right here. Now, their style is considered somewhat between rock and hard rock, definitely, as I mentioned, a lot heavier than Creed's. They've released five studio albums, all that had peak chart positions in the top 20, but none were higher than their debut album, One Day Remains, that went gold. They're still touring today and actually are known as being one of the better bands to see live. 
I have heard good things. Um, I don't see a touring schedule, but then again, I'll be honest, I never really looked. And this came up actually as one of my favorite wrestling entrances was Metalingus done by Alter Bridge that, again, it was a hard song. It was a fast and heavy song for Edge. And that kind of opened my eyes to Alter Bridge's other stuff. And along with doing the research for it, I think it's a fun band. I enjoy their stuff. I have to go completely off of the uh, the Edge entrance song. I uh, Metalingus was amazing in its in its entirety. I mean, I've not just a clip that we get on TV, but sure, in sure. its entirety, I've listened to the song, and it's it's a great song. And if they if all their music kind of has that Edge, uh, pardon the pun there, but if it has <laughs> that Edge to um, to it that they have in Metalingus, I would be all in for these guys. It's definitely worth a listen. I mean, if you're into Creed's music, more of the religious, because, I mean, Creed was a religious rock band, if you really get down to it. Possibly. They were, Creed was always one of those love-hate relationships. I, I enjoyed some of their music, but for the most part... Um... Creed was like Nickelback, actually, where a lot of people claim to hate them, but then they'll closetly listen to them. Yeah, I can see that. You know, and I was never a huge Creed fan, partially because of Scott Stapp. I thought he was kind of a whiny little monkey. <laughs> and you know and that's why when i see this i'm like oh it's the creed band members and then it's like oh wait a second this actually kind of rocks so okay creed is gone this is alter bridge this is awesome right and that's that's the main thing with these super groups is if you're able to take what they've done and look at the new stuff as just that new not something that they're just redoing it with a different lead singer or redoing it with a different guitarist or whatever up next i've got Derek and the dominoes we had the members eric clapton uh, guitarist and singer uh, from Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. Bobby Whitlock uh, also came from that band. He was the keyboardist and singer. The bassist, Carl Rattle, Jim Gordon on drums. They all came from Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. And then they brought in Dave Mason as the lead guitarist from Blind Faith. And a one-time member was there for the uh, for the uh, recording of their first album was George Harrison of the Beatles. Derek and the Dominoes were a blues rock band formed in the spring of 1970 by guitarist and singer Eric Clapton. Keyboardist and singer Bobby Whitlick, bassist Carl Rattle, and drummer Jim Gordon, all four members had previously played together in Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. During and after Clapton's brief tenure with Blind Faith, Dave Mason supplied additional lead guitar on early studio sessions and played at their first live gig. Another participant at the first session as a band was George Harrison. The recording for whose album, All Things Must Pass, marked the formation of Derek and the Dominoes. The, the band released only one studio album, Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs, produced by Tom Dowd, which, wa which also featured notable contributions on slide guitar from Dwayne Ullman. A double album, Layla, went on to receive critical acclaim, but initially faltered in sales and in radio airplay. Although released in 1970, it was not until March of 1972 that the album's single, Layla, a tale of unrequited love inspired by Clapton's relationship with his friend Harrison's wife, Patty Boyd, made the top ten in both the United States and the United Kingdom. Listen to this snippet. The album is often considered to be the defining achievement of Clapton's career. And it's one of those songs that everybody knows. Oh, yeah. What, what's your thoughts on, well, I guess Layla and Derek and the Dominoes? You know, Layla is, you're exactly right. It's one of those hooks that once you hear that riff at the beginning, you know what's coming up. 
regardless if you credit it to Eric Clapton himself, if you credit it to Derek and the Dominoes, it kind of just depends what your mindset is. The bottom line is that it is just a great song, and they put some great music out. Yeah, they did. Clapton doesn't really put out dogs. I mean, usually most of his stuff is good stuff, and for him to actually pick, handpick, I should say, these particular musicians and come together and form a band, even just for one album, just as a testament to show not only his musical brilliance, but also the fact that these are some damn good people he's working with. Yeah, and the man can, you know, he can thread or uh, trash a guitar. The guy can play. Oh, yeah. Although I have to say this, the live version of Layla, the slowed down, the unplugged one is what I was getting at. Okay. I fucking hate that song. <laughs> there are some songs that need to be played with a rock guitar. Right, and Layla was heavy enough that to bring it down to an acoustic live version, I don't think that would work. I, I've never heard that version of it. Oh, no, it's it, it made and might have even gotten Grammy nods for it, like the MTV Unplugged or whatever. I just personally hated it. It's just like uh, Hotel California by the Eagles. Mm -hmm. When they did the live Unplugged version, I was just like, what the hell for? No, put the plug it back in. Well, you know, it's one of those things. It's it's like a lot of awards show, whether it be, you know, the Grammys or the Billboards or whatever it is. 90% of the time, you look at the shit that they pick and there's got to be some sort of favoritism going on because oh, yeah. some of it is just piles of dog shit. Oh, it is. You know, it's just like the books that are award winners like Moby Dick. Boring as hell. Yeah. Yeah. You the know? the, the, the uh, pictured comic book of Moby Dick, you get the same story. In about 112 pages, and it's a comic book. Yeah, didn't didn't he read that in Major League? Didn't he read the comic book version? Yes, he did. He did. That's that's right, because the the Rene Russo character wanted him because she was a librarian yes. and wanted him to do that. So. Yeah. So what do you got next, Lou? Next I have is actually another project by George Harrison. This is the Traveling Wilburys. The Traveling Wilburys came to be in 1988 and was composed of George Harrison of the Beatles, Bob Dylan, who is his own guy, Tom Petty. Jeff Lynn from ELO and Roy Orbison. And Roy Orbison is my guy. Yeah, Roy Orbison is one of those guys. He had a solo career that was amazing, and the guy can sing. Oh, yeah. He just had the great falsetto that was just awesome. Now, Harrison was giving an interview in 1988 and asked, what about a follow-up for his solo album when he mentioned wanting to do an album with, quote-unquote, a few of my mates? And that's when the, first, the world first heard of the Traveling Wilburys. Apparently, Wilbury's slang Harrison used from when he was in recording on Cloud9. There were some recording errors that created some janky equipment, or created by some janky equipment, and Harrison jokingly mentioned, we'll bury him in the mix. So, Wilbury came to be. And it came to mean small errors in performance. Uh, Jeff Lynne was the one that mentioned traveling for the band, and pretty much the rest was history. Now... One of the main songs that came out, which I'm sure you've probably heard a ton of the time, was End of the Line. And that's what we'll take a quick listen to right here. Now, Harrison, Lynn, and Orbison got together at Bob Dylan's house for a dinner and decided to get the band going. Tom Petty was a serendipitous accident, actually. Harrison left his guitar at Tom Petty's house, and when he went to go get it, Petty was invited to be a session guy. A session guy for Tom Petty. Okay. Hey, hey, no kidding, right? And Warner Brothers liked the song Handle With Care too much to be a filler, 
and the members had so much fun working together, they said, what the hell, let's go ahead and do a full album. So they did Traveling Wilburys Volume 1 in 88, which went triple platinum. And then their follow-up, which is Traveling Wilburys Number 3, which was released in 1990, went platinum as well. The band itself did disband after Roy Orbison passed away, which it was done out of respect. Plus, I mean, they could have kept going because they had a pretty heavy-handed lineup. Oh, yeah. But I think it was very respectful of them, too, to go ahead and just kind of pass it along and say, okay, well, we did our time, we're good. Right, yeah, and I think the Wilburys would have lost something without Roy Orbison in it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if you see the video for End of the Line, when it does come time for his portion of the song, they actually pan over to a picture of him, which I thought was incredibly respectful. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I like the Wilburys. I actually started listening to them because of... You would think George Harrison, but not actually. That would have been my first thought. Tom Petty. Really? Yeah, I I do enjoy Tom Petty, um, especially stuff with the Heartbreakers. I enjoy that kind of music. It's kind of wonky. It's kind of rock, but it's kind of not, but it's kind of Tom Petty is very Bob Dylan to me, because if you think about it, he does the same kind of singing as Bob Dylan does. A little bit. A lot. A little bit. (laughs) We'll agree to disagree here. Which, don't get me wrong, he's not as bad as Dylan. Dylan's a great songwriter, but singing, I don't think he could carry a tune across the street in a bucket. No, I, I think you're right. <laughs> and Tom Petty is better than that. I think my displeasure with Tom Petty is the fact that classic rock stations love him to death. Zeppelin, Tom Petty, ACDC, and Def Leppard are the four, four bands that on any classic rock station in an hour you're going to hear at least one, if not all four of them. That's quite possible, yeah. So, I don't hate Tom Petty. They're not my favorite. As they're not even top 10 for me, but they're still a decent band. Yeah, I, so, I, I can go with that. So what do you got next for me? I'm going to change genre here. We've been talking a lot of rock and roll and that kind of stuff. Okay. I'm going to go with country. The Highwaymen. Chris Christopherson, who was a solo artist. Johnny Cash, who was uh, part of Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Three. Uh, and who was an amazing solo artist, obviously. Yes, uh, on his own. Waylon Jennings, who was a part of the Buddy Holly backing band before the Crickets. I remember reading that. And then Willie Nelson, who obviously was a solo artist. So these four guys came together. Midnight Toker? Yes. (laughs) Or midday, midnight, whenever. Whenever was convenient. The Highwaymen were a country music supergroup composed of four of the genre's biggest artists, well known for their pioneering influence on the outlaw country subgenre. Active between 1985 and 1995, these four artists recorded three major label albums as The Highwaymen two on Columbia Records, and one for Liberty Records. Their Columbia works produced three chart singles, including the number one, Highwayman, in 1985. Here, listen to this clip. I was a highwayman Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side So the four original members have starred in a movie together, in 1986 film Stagecoach. Were you familiar with this group, Lou? I really wasn't. I mean, I know of the individual, the, the, the individuals, but the sum of all of them, I really didn't know that they conglomerated together. Yeah, and they did a lot of good, like they call it, outlaw country. Oh, yeah. It would be up there with stuff like um, Hank Williams Jr. And, sure. and guys like that. I don't know. I really enjoyed the band. I really enjoy the song that we listened to here, uh, Highwayman, uh, which, you know, tells the story of different people in the building of america is really what it's about right i don't know uh it's one of those bands i don't have a whole lot to say about them because individually we could talk for a long time on all four of these guys 
Oh yeah. They, I mean, their individual accolades would, I mean, we could fill this room with everything that they've done. Oh yeah, absolutely. So what do you got for us, Lou? The next I have is Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Now, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, I'm just going to say ELP because it's a hell of a lot easier than, than saying it out every time, was formed in 1970 with keyboardist Keith Emerson of The Nice, singer and bassist Greg Lake from King Crimson, and drummer Carl Palmer of The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, who would later go on to the band Asia. Emerson Lake met at the Fillmore West. Emerson wanted to form a new band, and Lake wanted out of King Crimson. In searching for a drummer, Emerson's manager suggested Palmer, and their first album, like most bands, was a self-titled one and went gold in 1970. That included a song called Lucky Man, which is a bit of a kind of a softer-ish ballad, but it's still an entertaining kind of moving song, and we'll take a quick listen right here. Now, they released six more albums in the 70s, all of which went gold before disbanding in 1979. They got back together in 1991, quite a bit of a hiatus for that, and recorded two more albums, one in 92 and one in 94, neither of which really charted in the U.S. before breaking up in 1998. In 2010, they came together again for a North American tour and did a one-shot concert as a bit of a farewell. And a little interesting bit of trivia for any gamers out there, Koji Kondo, which is Nintendo's first game composer, who did Zelda, for example, okay. cites Emerson, Lake, and Palmer as a major influence on his music for Super Mario Brothers and Zelda. Interesting. If you listen to Lucky Man, it's not as evident as if you listen to further ones like Carnival Part 2, which it has a very keyboard-heavy type music to it. Uh, you can definitely tell something that's one of theirs. And they did a lot of classical covers, too. Like, they did the Fanfare for the Modern Man, and they did the Maple Leaf Rag and things like that. They're an entertaining band to listen to. I don't know how much exposure you've had, personally. Not a whole lot. Actually, um, I had never really heard of them until this past year. I do another podcast called Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? And I was compiling a list of famous people that had passed away in 2016. Oh, 2016 was hard on... on Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, on, because on, they lost they lost Emerson and they lost, uh, I want to say, Palmer. I believe so, yeah. So the two of them died within just, I think, six months of each other. You know, listening to the little bit I've listened to, I, I can't say they're a bad band by any stretch of the imagination. And just looking at the backgrounds that they've come from, I don't see I don't see where you could have a bad band. No, no. I mean, the music isn't for everyone. I'm going to put it out there that you kind of have to be in the mood and the right mindset for it. But if you give it a chance, it's absolutely worth listening to. I would agree. And what do you got for your next one for me? All right. So we're going to go with another Eric Clapton super group because, you know, the guy hasn't been part of enough great things. Oh, my God. So, you know, what else did he do now? Okay. So we're going to talk about the band Cream which was made up of uh, Jack Bruce, who, uh, who was a the bassist and a singer. Uh, he was from Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Okay. Pete Ginger Baker, who was from the ba Ginger Baker Trio, and he was the drummer. And then, of course, singer-guitarist Eric Clapton, and um, this time I'm going to say he's from the Yardbirds, because he was part of so another many. Another project. Yeah, another project, another supergroup that just, the guy is everywhere. When you, when you really sit down and look at music from, you know, the late 60s to probably... Almost today, to the late 90s, if not early 2000s, 
Clapton is everywhere. Oh, no kidding. Between what he's written, produced, what he's helped with, I mean, the dude's the man. Cream was a 1960s British rock supergroup power trio. The group's third album, Wheels of Fire, was the world's first platinum-selling double album. The band is widely regarded as the world's first successful supergroup. In their career, they sold more than 15 million copies of their albums worldwide. Their music included songs based on traditional blues such as Crossroads and Spoonful, and modern blues such as Born Under a Bad Sign, as well as, as more eccentric songs such as Strange Brew, Tales of Brave Ulysses, and Toad. The band's biggest hits are I Feel Free, Sunshine of Your Love, Crossroads, and Badge. White Room, uh, which charted at number 6 in the U.S., uh, let's go ahead and listen to a bit of White Room. In a white room with black curtains near the station. Black roof country, no gold payments, tired starlings. The band made a significant impact on the popular music of the time, and along with Jimi Hendrix and other notable guitarists and bands, popularized the use of the wah-wah pedal. They provided a heavy yet technically proficient musical theme that foreshadowed and influenced the emergence of British bands such as Led Zeppelin, the Jeff Beck Group, Deep Purple, and Black Sabbath in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. They also had an impact on American Southern rock leading groups, the Allman Brothers Band and Leonard Skinner. The band's live performances influenced progressive rock acts such as Rush, and the band was introduced into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1993. They were included in both Rolling Stones and VH1's list of the 100 greatest artists of all times at number 67 and 61 respectively. They were also ranked number 16 on VH1's 100 greatest artists of hard rock. What are your thoughts on Cream, Lou? I, I enjoy Cream. I mean, they formed, they called it, if my history is correct, because they considered themselves the cream of the crop. And it's true. I mean, Eric Clapton is pretty much one of the premier guys out there. Now, right, and then you put Gin Ginger Baker on drums. Have you heard any of his other stuff? I'm sure I have. I couldn't pick it out, though. Yeah, he is. he has got one of these drumming styles that it's not like anything else you ever hear, and you can hear that in Creed. Oh, sure. You know, and I, I enjoy it. White Room, um, Crossroads actually is one of my favorites. However, I remember the first time that I heard the song Crossroads wasn't by cream it was actually a cover that skinner did okay that makes sense it was off of i want to say it's one more from the road one more for the road or from the road and they introduced it saying this is a you know a song from a friend of ours okay and which based on what you were saying is how cream had a bit of a influence on just about every decent band from the 60s and 70s pretty much right i mean it would make absolute sense so i'm i would say i'm a fan i enjoy it i think they do great work i would agree with you so what do you got for us, Lou? My, my last one is this little little tiny group that you may have heard of before called Journey. 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 No, you'll have to jog my memory. Okay. Well, you know what? Most people don't know, but Journey actually is a supergroup. I was not aware of that, honestly. Um, it formed in 1973 with lead guitarist Neil Sean and lead vocalist guitarist Greg Rowley from Santana. And then Ross Valerie and George Tickner from Frumious, Bunder, uh, Frumious Bandersnatch. Okay, I just love the name of that band. I know, right? <laughs> and then drummer Prairie Prince from The Tubes. Now, shortly after their first performance, though, Prince went back to The Tubes and drummer Ainsley Dunbar from the Jeff Beck Group, another unknown, obviously, yep. facetiously, of course, who worked with a lot of big names in the industry, such as Frank Zappa and David Bowie. They had a fusion jazz style 
they sold albums, but not many. Their, basically, their sales did about as well as you would think with fusion jazz. It wasn't until a long-haired 28-year-old singer by the name of Steve Perry came along when Journey started to see their massive success start. They changed their style to a more rock and pop, and their first album with Perry, Infinity, dropped in 1978 and went triple platinum. Now, their next album, Departure, also went triple platinum, and in 81, their biggest album to date, Escape, released, and it featured one of the most sellingest downloads and songs of all time, and I'm not even going to tell you what it is, but I'm just going to let you listen to it because you're going to know what it is right away. This album, Escape, went diamond, which I had to look up, and meant that it sold more than 10 million copies. Right. It went just amazing. Their next three albums went platinum as well, which, if you're keeping track, that's a lot of platinum album sales. And I'm going to attribute that to Steve Barry, because they were kind of shitty beforehand, and he comes in and all of a sudden, oh, look at that, we're popular. He definitely made the band, when they changed direction and they changed singers... It made all the difference in the world. Oh, yeah. You know, and then, as I mentioned, the next three went platinum. And then in 1998, Steve Ferry was replaced, finger quotes, replaced, cough, cough, forced out of the band due to health reasons. And since then, they've gone through many personnel changes and continue to still tour, but they haven't really reached the success that they had in the 1980s. Little piece of trivia, and anyone who has ever watched American Idol would know this, but... Randy Jackson, the judge, actually played bass between 86 and 87 with Journey. Yeah, he talks about it nonstop when that show is on. Oh, yeah, he wouldn't shut up about it. But then again, there's some who don't actually watch the show and are kind of surprised. But then again, Journey had a lot of lineup changes. And as you and I had spoken about off air, they definitely have a unique sound to them that you can replace the lead singer with. There's the, the Indonesian guy, I think. And then there's some other new guy. And they may sound like Perry, but they're not Perry. Right. And they yeah. never will be. Right. And there's just certain guys out there that, you know, you can replace a singer with another singer that can do all the same stuff. But if it's not that person, for example, you could replace John Bon Jovi with someone who can sing just as well as John can. But it's never going to be Bon Jovi. No. And let's use the Van Halen versus Van Hagar, you know? Yeah. I've seen Van Halen in concert. It was with Sammy Hagar, and he sang some of the David Lee Roth era stuff. It still sounds good, but it lacked the push that David Lee Roth had. Likewise, when Roth sang some of the stuff from the Sammy Hagar era, it just didn't do it the same way. So I'm just giving props to Journeyman because he made that band. And oh, absolutely. When I'm hoping that when they get inducted to the Hall of Fame this year, if, if that hasn't already happened that he does actually show up and he do the reunion because even though Neil Sean is kind of a D-bag, just put your put your past beside and give him the props that he deserves. Right. We don't want to see another Guns N' Roses going into the Hall of Fame where Axel didn't show up because he's a D-bag. I you can't know? even comment on that because I can't disagree at all. <laughs> I have the bonus song this time. Ooh. I did more work than Lou, people. Did you hear that? Do you hear it? All right. So anyway, the last song... Oh, time! <laughs> So the last song that we have for you tonight, the bonus song, is um, it's a band called Velvet Revolver. 
the members of Velvet Revolver were um, from Stone Temple Pilots. We had Scott Wheeland, who was the singer. Uh, from Wasted Youth, we had Dave Kushner on rhythm guitar. And then some of the guys from Guns N' Roses. You had Matt Sorum for drums, Duff McKagan, who was a the bassist, and he also did some backing vocals. And, of course, Saul slash Hudson on lead guitar. So all they were missing was Izzy and Axel. Well, and the bevy of other guys that did... But yes, they were missing Izzy and Axel. Because Axel was just being Axel and Izzy went solo. Right. Yeah, exactly. So Velvet Revolver was an American hard rock supergroup. In 2004, the band achieved commercial success with their debut album, Contraband. Despite positive reviews, some critics initially described Velvet Revolver as a mere combination of Stone Temple Pilots and Guns N' Roses. Another lazy critic. Well, this one actually has more to say about it, though. Okay, good. Criticizing them for a disconnection between Scott Wheeland and the rest of the band. With their single Slither, they won the 2005 Grammy Award for Best Hard Rock Performance. The band released Libertad, or Libertad, Tad, I'm not sure how to say that word, in 2007. Driven by the release of the single, she builds Quick Machines and embarked on a tour with Alice in Chains. In April 2008, Wheeland left Velvet Revolver and reunited with Stone Temple Pilots. Velvet Revolver was put on indefinite hiatus in April 2008. Then in November of the same year, the band was released from their record label, RCA Records, at their request to allow them, quote, complete freedom to go through whatever process it would take to accomplish, unquote, replacing Wheeland. The release of Slash's self-titled debut album, solo album, and Duff McKeegan's addition to Jane's Addiction lineup seemed to put the future of the band in doubt. However, McKeegan left Jane's Addiction a few months after joining. Velvet Revolver then wrote new songs and briefly auditioned singers for before once again resuming their hiatus. Although reunited with Scott Whelan for a one-off reunion show in Janu- on January 12, 2012, at a benefit concert, which proved to be their last performance together before Whelan's death in 2015, Slash and McKagan have since uh, rejoined Guns N' Roses. Are you familiar with Velvet Revolver? Have you heard of them before? The only real one that I've heard of was... Um... I mean, I've heard of them. I really didn't listen to them too much when I was doing the research. Um, did we listen to the clip? Not yet. I actually wanted to get your input before we do the clip on this okay, one. Okay, just making sure. I, I'll i be honest, I knew of them. I really didn't listen too much of them. Um, it's. I guess it was just one of those where I wasn't as much of a Guns fan as you were. So when they went their separate ways and when they did their own side projects and everything else, it really wasn't my thing. I don't think they're bad by any means. It just wasn't what I got into. That being said, upon getting exposure to it, I'm kind of liking where they're going with it. Okay. So let's go ahead and listen to uh, a bit of the song called Big Machine. Now, Big Machine, I think, is probably my favorite Velvet Revolver song. And it's just it's just kind of a take on what's happening in the world. It's almost got a big brother feel to it as far as, you know, there's there's big machines, they're watching you, they're making you do this, they're making you want to do that kind of thing. That's all I really got. I, I just really enjoy Velvet Revolver. Um, I own both of their albums, unfortunately, with the death of Scott Wheeland and everybody going in their separate directions, uh, some back to old bands, some just off on their own. I doubt we'll see a third album from Velvet Revolver. Unless they come up with some maybe hidden stuff that they recorded and just never released, right? Yeah, I mean, that's always a possibility. Once again, we've come to the end of this um, additionally long uh, episode. I'm I'm hoping you all stuck with us through the almost hour here. 
you can you can uh, let us know if you like this format better. Do you like an hour show versus a half hour show? That might be something interesting to let us know. We're going to uh, you can reach out to us either through email at uh, musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook at Musically Challenge Podcast. I think that's about it for this week. So thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.